Romans chapter 1 and beginning at verse 11. I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged to each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among the other Gentiles. I am bound both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome. I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Amen. Uh, it is my pleasure to invite Stephen Galfrager uh, up to uh, share God's word with us this morning. Uh, Stephen? Would you like to come up and uh, we'll pray for you, but uh, perhaps you'd just like, before I do that, would you like to introduce yourself a little bit and tell us all we need to know about you before we let you loose in the pulpit? <laughs> I'm very pleased to be here. Uh, I, I hope that my microphone is on and that I've uh, managed to uh, navigate the challenges of the uh, microphone system. I'm very pleased to be here. I don't know what you'd like to know about me, really. I'm married to one wife. Uh, I'm just setting out my commitment to that, that's all I'm sure. Uh, I have uh, three uh, adult children, uh, five grandchildren. Uh, I uh, love what I do, which is work for the Clarion Trust, which I founded 15 years ago. And uh, most of my work is really with leaders, not always Christian leaders, uh, but leaders in politics or medicine, uh, uh, sometimes in, in, uh, particularly in the the states, with the military personnel, etc., etc., and so finding myself looking at the interface between faith, Christian faith, the Bible, uh, and the range of silos of society, uh, wherever they work out, really, politics, business, medicine, and, and so on. And I'm really glad to be on that interface because uh, lots of people at very senior levels of leadership uh, simply don't know a Christian. And uh, I'm glad to have the opportunity to talk about my faith in those contexts. And I support Manchester United. <laughs> Which I thought I'd say that in order to vibe the congregation. You did notice that on the bio online. It, it caused corruption. Really, really. Yes. You, we drew the invitation, nearly. Very good. Thank you for that. And let us pray for you. Father, we thank you for bringing Stephen uh, to be with us this morning. We thank you for the gifts uh, that you have given him, for the way he has used, the, used those and is using them <coughs> in the Clarion Trust. And even as we pray uh, for him, but uh, ask for your anointing on him to bring your word to us this morning, we ask for that anointing in all the places and spaces, in all the different people that he has mentioned that he meets with. May he bring light and hope uh, into the lives of people who don't know you yet. And Lord, we, we just ask your blessing upon him now. In the name of Jesus and in his power we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. Lovely to see you all this morning. Thank you to Rachel, too, for an enthusiastic 
greeting. Uh, it's a first for me. I've never been in a church uh, before where the leader of the service uh, corrected the grammar of the Prince of Wales. It's a good start. Confident leadership. That's what I like to see. A bit of energy uh, at the front. I'm also grateful too for the height of the pulpit, uh, which is perfect for me. Uh, uh, Rachel and I share a Zakian statue, <laughs> uh, and uh, I'm uh, glad about that. Uh, my uh, experience of travelling is not so happy because I'm relatively short. Lots of places I go, I think they just think I'm a, a kind of disembodied head because that, that's all they see of me behind these enormous pulpits. It's easier now, but uh, uh, in the past, with those enormous church pulpits, it was quite difficult. When I was first married, my wife in a moment of gracious affection gave me a, a kiss and said i'm sure you're going to be a model husband and i smiled sweetly at the affirmation i looked it up in the dictionary it said model small imitation of the real thing <laughs> so interestingly enough here i am with the pulpit the right size and uh, and the fair uh, uh, so close <laughs> to us um, it's interesting, actually, because reflecting, and I hope as I uh, meet some of the leaders over lunch to reflect on this further, seeing where you are situated in, in this uh, town is just, you could not be more central to the life of the town. Uh, and it's great. Um, and looking at the fair, I thought to myself, the people who run the fair, charter fairs around the nation, are, are broadly nomadic people and, and feel themselves quite isolated from community. Some years ago, I was approached by a charter a circus that had come to town, and the owner approached me and asked me, he said, we've got a new tent, uh, uh, he kept calling me Vicar, which uh, I wasn't, but he said, uh, could you come and bless our tent? And I thought to myself, do I know a prayer for a tent? <laughs> and I realized that I didn't have a prayer for a tent. Uh, offhand, but I knew. Uh, and uh, I didn't want to turn the opportunity down, so I thought, well, I'm sure I can come up with a prayer for a tent. Uh, but what an opportunity to pray for him, for the circus performers, and for the people. They were incredibly blessed because they had no roots in society. Uh, and I think people like this don't have societal roots, and there may be an opportunity for you. Uh, not necessarily to climb out that window and go on a ride, uh, uh, but to engage uh, with uh, those folk. But anyway, you're situated superbly. God's clearly blessing you. I drove this morning through torrential rain uh, the whole way uh, until I got to the edge of Wilton. Uh, and uh, the Lord enabled me to walk to you in the drive, which was, a, uh, which was a good thing. So here we are this morning thinking about confidence in the gospel from Romans chapter 1, and focused on the verse that uh, uh, Rachel included in her reading, verse 16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, and then to the Gentile. If you are listening carefully to the uh, reading, you'll know that Paul had never actually been to Rome, uh, he wanted to go, but wasn't actually able to go until he went in uh, not very propitious circumstances. He was going under arrest. Uh, the church in Rome was probably pretty small, uh, certainly compared with the capital of the huge Roman Empire. 
And so Paul is writing to a small group of believers who would have felt powerless compared with the military machine which ruled from Rome around the ancient world with enormous authority, sometimes brutal. The sheer infrastructure <coughs> capacity of the road building program around the empire, which saw them as the dominant force politically as well as militarily, and they were in advance of pretty much every other civilization. Uh, you probably don't want to know this, but the sewerage system in Rome was incredibly advanced. I, I, I was in Rome not so long ago. It, I think it's the same system. Uh, <laughs> and, and it was incredibly advanced in the first century. And so this is a dominant, major, global superpower. And in the heart of it is a very small bunch of people who, for reasons we don't know, had heard about the good news. They, they'd somehow come across it. Uh, maybe you heard of Paul's travels throughout Asia Minor, who knows. But this was a group trying to make a difference in the heart of an empire that was completely unfriendly to any worship which demanded total allegiance. You could believe anything you wanted in the ancient Roman world, as long as you didn't challenge authority, as long as you were let were prepared to say that you weren't the truth, but just one of a multiplicity of truths. That was all fine. But Christians, you see, couldn't do that. They had to say what they believed to be true, which was that the only God is God the Father, and Jesus is his Son, and he is, to quote John 14, verse 6, the way, the truth, and the life, and that the emperor worship, which was so common, wasn't appropriate. Well, you really can't go around saying to ancient leaders like Caesars, uh, by the way, you're under the authority of the god we worship. Generally, Caesars didn't like that a lot. Lots of ancient kings had the power of life and death, and they were often irrational. And, and so if they didn't like the look of your face or pretty much anything, whole tribes or cities were sometimes devastated on a whim because of this power at the heart of the Roman Empire. So into that objectionable world for Christian believers, and into that world of raw power, antithetical to anything Christian, this little group of believers struggles to say, well, what are we about? And how can we make a difference in our world? And so Paul begins his writing which is, oh gosh, the book of Romans is a real challenge. We, we know that, uh, don't we? You have to have a brain the size of a small planet, actually, to uh, write Romans, uh, and a, quite a sizable understanding to understand what Paul was saying some of the time. Uh, but we do know he's saying this. You're at the heart of an empire. But the kingdom of God is bigger than that empire. And the power of God is more powerful. And you can imagine the people reading this letter. Actually, they, they probably didn't read it, read it. They probably had it read to them. You can imagine them listening as the leader of the congregation says, oh, by the way, we've had a note from Paul. And it's on a postcard. It's quite long. And, and this is what he says. And you can hear them listening, can't you? Get under the skin of this. They're going, uh, Paul says about this power that's transforming. And, and they think, oh, my word. Does Paul not know what Rome's like? The sheer cruelty, the sheer oppressive nature of 
so much of the environment. Doesn't he understand? Yes, Paul did understand. And for some reason, now known to us because we're clearer about the impacts of the resurrection of Jesus, the gospel is more powerful than any military force, any political power, any philosophical ideology. It is the power of the universe. It's just, just stunning. This You can't see it. You can't feel it sometimes. Nevertheless, that's the reality that Paul understood and that we now know. Though we too don't see it or feel it as much as maybe we should or could. I am not ashamed of the gospel, says uh, Paul. Easy to be ashamed of the gospel because it, it seems a bit odd in a secular world like today, just as it did in first century Rome. God would have seen a million miles from everyday life in Rome. Where, where is he? Just like today. You watch the news, so pleased, Rachel, that you, you, you made the news front and centre. This is a church family that wants to engage the community and the world. We're not living in some isolationist ghetto bubble here at Wilton Baptist Church, in which we do our thing, but it's irrelevant to the wider world. Wonderful. But the wider world in Britain today feels very unfriendly, doesn't it, to faith issues. The newspapers, the television, uh, and the BBC is uh, friendly to just about every faith on the planet except Christianity. We, we know this, we can monitor it, we measure it, we know that that, we're not accusing it in some negative way, we just know that that's true because we can, we can physically monitor the way these issues are addressed. So we know that large amounts of the press are negative about Christianity, and we know that people drink that in, and so they live their lives thinking the church is an irrelevance at best, and a positive obstruction to progress at worst. So God seems nowhere in society today, and it's easy to be crushed in and oppressed by that. That's why when Paul was ordaining uh, Timothy, that's in fact what he was doing, but as he was blessing him, laying hands on him, he said, you need to have not a spirit of timidity, but love, power, and self-control. That's what the release of the spirit was to bring. This dynamism for an old apostle into a young preacher, Timothy. And that's what Paul wanted for his people, wants for us uh, today. And somebody with, <laughs> some sad individual with too much time on their hands, uh, read the book of Romans and counted the number of times God's mentioned. <laughs> you could probably do a Google search and it would reveal the same thing uh, these days. And they came up with a view that 153 times in the book of Romans, God gets mentioned. Why does that matter? Because for the people in Rome, God would have hardly ever got mentioned. It would have seemed irrelevant to their society and to their culture overall. And so this is a book that reminds us that God is living and active and involved, even though we can't see him. He is at work. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, says Paul. The gospel, of course, means good news. And so often we don't think the gospel is good news. And so we don't share it with the kind of animation that actually believes it's good news. Think of any piece of good news. The arrival of a new baby, engagement, uh, a new job, uh, your football team winning, uh, <laughs> any, any piece of good news, trivial, massive, significant, whatever it is, piece of good news, you, sh you share it 
really. I, I remember when I was in local church leadership quite a few uh, years ago, uh, it was a very sporting uh, eldership. They all loved sport of various kinds. So when we gathered to pray on a Sunday morning, my job what was the role of the referee, actually, <laughs> to referee between the various competing teams. Uh, and to say, yes, fine, good, I'm pleased they won yesterday, that's really good. Uh, we, we just, we're praying now. As the service begins in a few weeks time, let's, let's pray. And it was interesting, those who team had won, prayed with enormous enthusiasm and positivity about the service. And those whose teams had lost, tended to focus on confession and repentance, really. <laughs> and so mood music changes depending on how good news affects us. The gospel is good news. Why? What is the gospel? Anyway, that Paul's preaching. Well, of course, his letters, the, the doctrine section of the New Testament, largely written by Paul, not exclusively, but largely, um, outlines this good news. It takes what Jesus said and did through Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, with those eyewitness accounts of what Jesus had come to do and the words of Jesus himself, and, and then fills them out. And we know that the good news is that the brokenness of the human condition can be repaired by an engagement with Jesus Christ. We know that our sadness can be met by his joy. We know that the inevitability of death, which faces every human being, need not be a terminus, but simply a landing stage onto another destination. We know that death has been defeated. We know that human community and family is possible because whatever the colour of your skin or mine, whatever your ethnicity, whatever your class, if Jesus Christ lives in you as he lives in me, we have something which binds us together far greater than that which divides us. So we know that the gospel is good news for community relationships. Now we know that religion on its own can be bigoted, divisive, and negative, but we know that a relationship with Jesus can be enormously healing for communities and for societies. So the gospel is good news, the forgiveness of what the Bible calls sin, the, the rebellion against God, the guilt, the brokenness of the human condition, a clean and clear conscience, a new start. Oh, gosh. A number of people I work with in very senior leadership some earning millions, some with incredible power over their community, some with lots of people under their command. As I talk to them, once you peel back the layer, you find failed marriages and children who are not speaking to them and brokenness. The gospel is good news for the repairing of brokenness. And God is at work. I can assure you, in our world, even though it doesn't feel like that, even though the war in Ukraine goes on and on interminably with no human solution in sight, God's not dead. He's alive. And he is working in his world, even though we don't see it. And our boldness is not in relation to what we see, but what we know of the power, notice this verse, of the gospel which is going on doing its transformative thing. That's the great thing about the Book of Romans. It, it is, uh, at times, incredibly densely written and tightly packed argument. 
Uh, it, it really is. When you've understood Romans 9 to 11 about the place of Israel, you must let me know uh, precisely uh, the detail Paul is driving at uh, there. I've spent a lot of my life uh, in the book of Romans, and one of the things I'm going to ask when I get to heaven, uh, uh, the Apostle Paul, is to say, well, look, it would have been helpful if there had been some pictures, <laughs> a few illustrations. You know, that would have been really, really useful, Paul. And so despite the, the density of the, the uh, argument, the complexity of so much of it, uh, underlying it is this great simplicity, which is the gospel remains wonderfully good news, therapeutically marvellous for individuals. And actually, when it's embraced societally and by a community, it breeds the same wholeness and completeness. And, and what a fantastic opportunity you have here to be models of that, that good news to this community that you see even out of the window, uh, out of the window uh, here. Uh, I had a nice uh, chat this morning uh, with the ladies who run the coffee shop over the road. Very open, very open. Uh, and I'm just, a, I'm just a visitor. And uh, I, I always ask this question because in, in people knew there actually, whenever I do a church thing, which I, I don't do as much of these days, I go into a town or village or city and park somewhere and I ask the first person on the street I meet, where is the church? Now I know, before you correct my theology, that the church is people, I know all that. Where's the church building? So I said to them over the road, how do you get into Wilton Baptist Church? It looks like a fortress. <laughs> and instantly said, oh, it's just that entrance there opposite the fair. I thought, aha, okay, there's value in that, well done. People in your community know how to get in. That's quite a helpful thing, actually, in the church. They know how to get in. Uh, it's good because, believe me, if people are nervous about getting in, they'll fear they can't get out. I'm telling you, that, that's the truth of the matter about community life. The gospel is the power of God to salvation. And Jew first, yes, of course, first in terms of chronology. Uh, Jesus obviously firstly ministering among the Jews. For Paul, there's a certain primacy of making sure Jewish people know about faith. But then to the Gentile nations of the world, of which we are a part. Obviously, Wilton is a part of that global Gentile empire. Though there may be, uh, well, Jewish uh, people with Jewish heritage in the, in the background. But this morning we're reminded that this is true for us. The gospel is the power. It's an interesting phrase. Actually, because uh, power, the effects of power are generally what you see, rather than the power itself. The effects of the electric power in this building are seen in bright light and the clarity of my voice or musical instruments, uh, music team that led us so well this morning, all of that. But it's often invisible. And I, I often think that Christians are timid because they haven't yet come to understand the perception of God's power as not always being seen. That doesn't mean God isn't working. You can't see it. I, um, I fly a lot. Uh, recently, uh, just earlier this year, well, a week or two ago, I've been in uh, China working, and uh, <coughs> the church there is under enormous pressure. And, and in India, uh, similarly, the church under enormous pressure. And yet they see God at work with a clarity we tend not to see. 
in their horribly oppressed situation. So anyway, I fly a, a great deal, usually by plane, um, and, um, and I love the opportunities God has given me, uh, but I love watching people. And uh, I often sit in my seat on a plane, and I look around. Uh, I'm looking out for the nervous flyer. Perhaps you're here this morning. And what's fascinating about them is they always behave in precisely the same way. And so you're sitting in your seat and the plane pulls back from the gate and gets trundled its way to the edge of the runway. Uh, and the captain says, I can almost, I can do the safety briefing, by the way. <laughs> Nearest exit may be behind you, all that stuff. Um, it, the captain will say, uh, 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 please take your seats for takeoff. He's talking to the crew, the uh, flight attendants. Flight attendants, please take your seats for takeoff. And then gets to the end of the runway. And then the engine roars into life, right, at the end of the runway. You're all, many of you have flown. Mm -hmm. Nervous flyers do the same thing. I catch them out of the corner of my eye. They, as the engines roar into life, they grab the sides of their chair. Oh, like this. And uh, they always do the same thing. It's fascinating. They grab it like this. And the train, uh, the train, the plane gets faster and faster along the runway. And then there's a moment when you're not sure whether you're flying or not. Depending if you've been up in a plane, you, you, the nose wheel comes up and you, am I in the air yet? Am I not in the air? And the plane just gradually eases off the ground. This is what nervous flyers do. They're, they're holding on like this. And as the plane takes off, they lift up out of their seat, <laughs> pressing against the seat. So there's a space underneath their bottom there like this. They, they, because what they're doing is they're helping the plane get off the ground. It's, it's true. You, I've seen that so many times. I'm not inventing this, right? I've seen so many times. Now, <laughs> you're half expecting the captain to go over the loudspeaker system saying, I'm really grateful to Mrs. Jones in C43A because that helped us get off the ground enormously. Thank you so much. That is great. <laughs> now, in a more rational moment, Mrs. Smith in 43A knows that it's the power of the engines and the aerodynamic shape of the wing and gets the plane off the ground. It's nothing to do with them. Invisible, they don't see it, but it's lifting passengers and luggage and plane and engines and everything else off the ground because that's the power that does it. It's an invisible power, but it's a power that nevertheless is clearly at work and it sustains the aircraft until coming in to land. And it seems to me that one of the great prayer needs for the Church of Jesus is to engage this verse and this passage in a way that invites the Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see God at work. Jesus actually said of his own ministry, I only do what I see the Father doing. And so somehow we've got to uh, allow the Holy Spirit to open our eyes because when we see God at work, even in small ways, it builds our faith and confidence to speak boldly about what God is doing. And then we realise the gospel is good news for every uh, every moment. Uh, we had my wife had a lovely experience of this of building a faith about a year ago. She met a young mum in the village square uh, where we live, and uh, we started talking to her. Invited her. It was a, a an Easter. Uh, a Good Friday kind of service in the open air, and she was just wandering past this single mum with a little child. And Jan, my wife, invited her back to the uh, church hall, 
but uh, hot cross buns, you know, a good kind of thing. And she came, quite lonely, I guess, and she came, and over time, Janet befriended her and talked to her a bit about helping raise this young child on her own, young baby, and uh, met with her, and then bought her a Bible, and then uh, carried on meeting with her once a week to study the Bible, and, and so on and so on. And then this last Easter, uh, I had the great joy of preaching at her baptismal service. Uh, she came to faith in Jesus Christ over this period of time from a completely unchurched sort of background. Now, you've no idea the kind of blessing that was, A, to the church, and B, to my wife. Because it was a little thing in a way, but how good to see God actually at work. And we need to have our eyes opened. And, and that is the big prayer, I would say, for churches. Lord, help me see what you are doing and join you in doing it. God wants the salvation of the world more desperately than we do. What's he doing? How can we see what he's doing? There's a great Old Testament story, Elisha, got some young mentoree that he's looking after, and, and Elisha had lots of enemies. You did, by the way, when you were a prophet, you had loads of enemies. That's partly the challenge for church leadership today, by the way, we want everybody to like us, and it's a big mistake. Uh, popularity isn't a really good thing, uh, uh, usually. Uh, some, the occasional bit of hate mail is very good for a leader. <laughs> and, uh, uh, because, you know, it, it sharpens the focus a bit, really. You can't, you, popularity is a bad aim. You're trying to please everybody. I did it years ago. I did a church consultancy for quite a big church. And um, one of the deacons said to me, now, what we're trying to do in this church is we're trying to take everybody with us. And I said, well, fine. <laughs> then you'll just be doing this. 20 years from now. Because the goal, of course you want to take everybody with you. <coughs> the goal is to do what God wants. <laughs> that's, that's the dynamic. <laughs> this, kind of, this kind of unrealistic populism in which the leader is trying to just please everybody is simply never going to work. And that's why Paul's so direct about the gospel. It's the gospel, it's the power of God seeing life transforming. And so opening our eyes is a critical thing to see God at work and join him in what he is actually doing. Because he is at work. Because he is transforming society. And he is transforming lives. And I know, I'll just say this, I know that's not easy. Because our lives are hard. We're grappling ourselves with ill health, perhaps. Our children are not walking with the Lord in the way we wish they were, our grandchildren, maybe similarly. As we get older, we have more aches and pains. I remember a conversation with a medic friend of mine, a doctor friend of mine, many years ago. Uh, and he'd had a lady come to see him uh, in her 70s, I think she was, and he said to her, very pastorally caring, how are you today, dear? And she said, well, doctor, when you're over 70, if you wake up in the morning and nothing hurts, you must be dead. <laughs> so, so the doctor was suitably surprised by this comment and then tried to help her, no doubt, whenever she'd come to see him about it. So as we get older, we age, we get frailer. Oh, gosh. I am incredibly healthy, thank God for that, and feel very well. Uh, but you know something, I don't deal with jet lag as well as I did when I was 30. 
It's just a fact. I hate to confess it to you, because I think I am invincible. <laughs> but I'm not. So as we age, challenges come, children and grandchildren don't always behave as we want them to, our health may fail, life has thrown lots of disappointments at us, we haven't achieved what we wanted to achieve. Personally, things can be really tough. And put that in the context of a world which is really tough, the brokenness and oppression of a society which is increasingly abandoning the Judeo-Christian constructs which surrounded most of our society for the 20th century, and the Bible, and the Ten Commandments, and all that stuff being far from people's consciousness. So, community and society negativity, personal brokenness combined, makes it all oh, incredibly real, which is why we need our eyes opening to what God is doing, and realizing that it's in his strength. And it's the gospel that's the power of God, not us. And so on. My brothers and sisters, um, the ancient world was transformed by the gospel. The Caesars are no more. We name our children after the apostles and our dogs after the Caesars. <laughs> no one would have believed that the Roman Empire was ever going to end. You know that, don't you? No one ever believed it. In the 20th century, everybody believed that the American Empire was going to be the dominant factor for centuries to come. They were wrong. The power has moved in our world in the last 20 years from the Atlantic to the Pacific. The world is changing. And into that world of change, fearfulness comes. And I just want to say to you this morning as I close, may God open our eyes to what he's doing and may we have a new sense that the King, Jesus, is still on the throne. And he's still powerful. He's alive. One of my favourite illustrations of this is of an art gallery and a, a, a painting that appeared by a contemporary artist on the wall. People came and went. It was a picture of a chessboard. And uh, it had a, a, a Christian on one side, a human, looking down and discouraged, and the devil, the archetypal tail and horns, on the other side, looking at the chessboard. And uh, the word underneath simply said, checkmate, the devil has won. And the picture stayed up, actually, for some months. Until one day, a chess grandmaster toured the art gallery, and he spent a few minutes looking at the painting. And suddenly his eyes opened wide. And he said, fetch the artist, the local artist, fetch the artist. The artist came. And the chess master looked at the picture with the artist and the chessboard. He said this simple sentence. The king has another move to make yet. <laughs> Everybody thinks it's checkmate to the devil, don't they? In contemporary society, Christians think that. But I'm here this morning to tell you, on the authority of God's word, that the king has another move to make.